please turn as we continue in our study, the minor prophets, to the prophecy of Nahum. The prophecy of Nahum. I'll read Nahum chapter 1. I can't allow too much extra time for you to find it either. <laughs> An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Why do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. For you can't... For from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. As we come to the prophecy of uh, Nahum, and uh, please excuse me if I uh, mess with uh, glasses and things today, having had that surgery, uh, but we have to remember that it's just three chapters, and it's uh, all against uh, the city uh, of Nineveh, which was part of the Assyrian Empire. And so it makes Nahum uh, the second book in the Old Testament that focuses uh, on Nineveh. You remember Jonah was sent to preach. It's roughly a hundred or so years earlier, and Nineveh repented. And now a hundred years later, uh, Nahum is predicting judgment. Uh, I have the ability to look at old commentaries and newer commentaries, and the newer commentaries, 
uh, uh, show that there's backlash about Nahum. Why is, why is this book in the Bible, somebody actually asked. Well, th those people would question anything that the scripture says. But we need to remember that all scripture is inspired by God. It doesn't matter if it's just three chapters. It doesn't matter that it's just against Nineveh and, and maybe it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't matter. All scripture is inspired. But what does Paul say? It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction, for all those other things. So to somebody who says, well, why is this book? We just say posh on you. Uh, this is God's word. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God. These words are relevant to us. These words are just a, a picture of what happens in the book of Revelation. Really, they are. And, and so are so many of the messages of the prophets that we've seen. God judges his enemies and delivers his people. That, we've seen that over and over and over again. And, and we, uh, uh, the, the, the teachers in the church, want to stand in the day of judgment like Paul did to the Ephesians and said, we told you the whole counsel of God. We're not going to say, oh, well, let's, yeah, preach on something else. Tell him something else. No, we're going to come to this, this first page and we're going to preach on Nahum because it's the whole counsel of God. It's, it's what's, what God has said. In an hour or so, or we, we, we go up to that buffet and, and we get our choice and we like our favorite things. Well, maybe this isn't your favorite thing, but still it's food for the soul. So that's the preaching introduction. So Nahum's name means comfort. It's not mentioned anywhere else. He says he's Nahum of Elkosh, and nobody can figure out where Elkosh was. And there's all sorts of speculation about this, that, and the other thing. Uh, another much easier thing to figure out is the time of his prophecy. There are several keys in uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Uh, the fall of Thebes uh, uh, an Egyptian city is mentioned. The Assyrians conquered uh, Thebes in about 664 to 663. And uh, that was uh, the uh, ruler Ashurbanipal. And he took the city and then he died around 627. Uh, and so uh, one uh, Resource puts the prophecy between 660 and 630. And another says in a, in a broader sense, Nahum could have uh, preached between 664 and around 612 when, when uh, Ashurbanipal uh, uh, passed away. Uh, and then in 612, uh, not, no, no, Ashurbanipal died in 627. I just said that Nineveh fell in 612. And that was a coalition of the Medes and the Babylonians. Now, we, we also have to remember, if he preached over 30 years, that's, that's more than three chapters worth. So, so we're, we're, we're getting what God wanted us to hear. Remember that. He could have preached 20 years. He didn't just say three chapters worth. So we, we've seen that before. He started to preach basically when Assyria was what's in, in its prime, but soon... Uh, began a rapid decline. That, 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 that's a, a common theme. Assyria's demise came qu uh, quickly. Uh, we mentioned before Jonah preached about a hundred years before, and uh, 
some of the rulers after Jonah were uh, extremely uh, evil. Sennacherib tried to take over Judah and Jerusalem, roughly 701, and you remember the 185,000 Assyrian uh, soldiers were killed by the angel after Rabshakeh comes and taunts God and taunts the people and, and, and says stuff against them. Next thing you know, there are 185,000 soldiers uh, short. But it didn't take them, it didn't take them very long uh, to go home uh, to regenerate another uh, generation of army men and, and uh, come back. So uh, next thing is the message. It's an oracle concerning Nineveh. That's the subject. And you know that an oracle is a divine prophetic utterance or proclamation. It's something that God gave somebody to say. Uh, he says also it's the vision and that is the means of communicating the message. We, we've seen this over and over. Oracles and visions, burdens, etc. Now, right at the outset, you could see that he's talking about God. And God is the only God. But it's interesting that not until verse 12 does he say, thus says Yahweh. But every, everything up to that, he's speaking about God. Nobody else could uh, be that person that he's speaking of. And then he says, thus says Yahweh. But with all authority, God is portrayed. And with all authority, God is saying, I'm coming after uh, Nineveh. When we, when we talk about introductions, it, it, it's interesting uh, that Barnes' commentary, the introduction to, uh, uh, to Nahum is 23 pages long. I said, well, I'll read somebody else's introduction then. But... Uh, but, but, but all the detail that could be brought out, you think about that. It's not just a passing thing. Oh, it's Nahum. It's only three chapters. 23 pages of introduction. And he, he puts you right in there in the whole climate of, of what is going on. Uh, different descriptions of this prophecy include an extended taunt, uh, almost as if God is saying, here, look, you, you were going to do this, but I'm going to do that. Uh, another writer calls this uh, war poetry. Uh, somebody else says this is a prophecy of recompense. It's, uh, it's time to pay back. And, and uh, Nahum is saying th this is what's going to happen to uh, Assyria. Uh, it's a theology of the maxim of the sword, a writer says. Right? If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The Assyrians were... Uh, recorded in history as being one of the cruelest nations uh, ever. And uh, their, their uh, cruelties and wickedness rivaled some of these uh, dictators that we've seen even in our day. But not only a theology and a maxim of the sword, but a theology of the goodness and justice of God. Remember that, that those things go together. It's judgment on the wicked and preservation of his people. You, you can't separate those things because God in all his attributes is everywhere, every place at the same time, fully all the time. You can't even describe it. So those things go together. And like I mentioned in Revelation, uh, it's the same thing. Revelation 18.1, uh, an angel calls out and says, Fallen is Babylon the Great. And it talks about the, the fall of Babylon. The, the, the world system in Revelation denoted as Babylon. Uh, 
and to underscore uh, the fact in chapter 19 and verse 1 of Revelation, John says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immoralities and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The end, the end rejoicing that John sees is going to be the people of God saying we're thankful that the person that tried to drag the church away, that the person that tried to persecute all the Christians it, it is finally judged. It's God's goodness and it's justice. We've talked about it before. We know when we see injustice and that day we will understand that we're seeing perfect justice. Perfect justice. And we'll say, hallelujah, all God's enemies are gone. We've been, we've been praying that God's enemies would be gone for years. We've been praying that the enemies of my soul would be gone for years and years. They fight against me almost every day, I feel it. And now they're gone. And the moral universe says, bless the Lord, hallelujah. But in Revelation 19:1, there's similar things that are in Nahum. There's God's character. An enemy is judged. The enemy is great. Assyria was a world power. The, the, the great prostitute who, uh, who corrupts the earth with immorality, that's a powerful force, isn't it? And the word avenged comes up. But so does God's power, which we'll see next. The great multitude cries out, and the, the blood of his servants is avenged. One of the commentaries calls uh, Assyria and Nineveh a prototype of God's judgment of the nations. But I would say it's not a prototype because God has, has always uh, uh, targeted wicked cities. And you can think of Jericho, you can think of Ai, you can think of other places uh, that were under uh, God's judgment, cities and kingdoms. But it is a reminder to us of the wickedness of, of individual cities, of the wickedness of culture, of the corruption uh, uh, of uh, people. Then also, uh, Nahum is a reminder of this biblical pattern. God promises Israel a land. Israel conquers the land while executing God's judgment on wickedness on the people that are there, wiping them out. But then Israel sins against God, and incrementally, they are attacked. They're attacked by Syrians, they're attacked by Moabites, they're attacked by Edomites, Perizzites, Philistines, back and forth, back and forth. They're attacked incrementally, and then uh, they're attacked totally. Maybe that's not the best. But Assyria comes and takes the northern kingdom, and then Babylon comes and takes the southern kingdom. So the picture of the incremental invasions was only a final picture. And then, where in this last section, God judges the conquering nations along with other nations. And, that, and that's the cycle that we've seen. 
It's God's pattern, God's providence, and God's predetermination. Because, as Acts 17, 26 says, God not only created the world, but he determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of every nation's dwelling place. He determined it all. How long is the Assyrian Empire going to last? God knew date, time, everything. Who was going to conquer, etc., etc. He tells Daniel, look at this statue. This is this, this is that, this is this, this is that, this is this. And this little stone's going to come along and knock the rest of it completely down. And it'll be a kingdom that's forever. But you can trace history, and God knows all that time. Every prophecy concerning every nation is fulfilled in God's time. That's the way it is. And, and it, it should spur us on to pray for the USA, shouldn't it? So chapter 1. Chapter 1 starts to talk about what God is and what God does. And, and I put down that it's a, a psalm concerning Yahweh, because it reads like a psalm. If you have a, uh, if you have a, a Bible with cross-references, you'll see psalm this, psalm, psalm, psalm. First of all, he says he's a, he's a jealous God. And he first says that in Exodus 20, verse 5, before he gives the law. And he uses a picture of, of things on the earth, trees and animals and, and, and things like that, because that's what men do. They, 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 they make gods out of the stuff that they can see. And then he says, you shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a, a, a jealous God. He says, if you become an idolater, he says, I have the power to take your iniquity and put it on your children's children's children. You see them walking around, don't you? You, you? you see people walking around now who've been abandoned for generations by God. They don't know the Bible. They've never gone to church. They don't understand who Jesus was. They don't. God has the ability to do that. It's a description of his righteousness because God is jealous for his worship. You don't bow down and serve anybody else. He's jealous for his name. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? What it's like in God's ears for somebody in Israel to say, Oh, Baal, bring us crops. Oh, Baal, give us fruited fields. It has to do with his holiness because he's about ready to give all the commandments. Don't serve other gods, and here's how you serve me. And then it's also about his uniqueness because he's asserting that he's the only God. We saw it last week. The only pardoning God, the only offended God. Who is a pardoning God like you? Oh, you say, that's a great, great thing. Yeah, but only criminals need pardons. Only somebody who's, who who's have offenses against them need a pardon. But that's what he says. He's, his jealousy produces... Uh, this avenging and the vengeance and his wrath is the result. This is what he does. He takes vengeance. He keeps wrath for his adversaries and his enemies. And he's not playing games. Vengeance is causing harm to someone or something in retribution for a wrong or an injury. 
you did something to me, I'm going to avenge that. We are told, Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves. Hebrews 10, 30, people spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant. They outraged his spirit, but God says, vengeance is mine. They start with not for... They start with forsaking the assembly together and they end up doing wickedness. But, but uh, God says, no, I'm the one who executes vengeance. You don't have the right, but I do. That's important. A whole nation, a whole city. And God says, I'm the one that is the only one that has the right to take my vengeance. And this is how it's going to happen. He says the vengeance is kept or reserved. And then verse 3 through 5, there's 12 uh, different things that he says about himself. First of all, he says he's slow to anger, but he's coming to take vengeance. You, you see, the picture is my, anger, my, my patience is gone. Uh, that, that's, that, that's hard to say about God, but basically he's slow to anger uh, until he moves. He says he's great in power. Re Revelation 19.1 said that. To you are all the power. He, he can freely execute his power. And then comes this, comes this demonstration. Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. The guilty, uh, the people who are guilty of sin will, will be punished. You remember the Pharisees' reaction. They, they let the man down in the midst of Jesus and he said, your sins are forgiven. They said, well, well you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. That's right. And, and that's what he's saying. If anybody's guilty, I can hold their sin against them. If anybody needs redemption, I can redeem their sins and take it away. Repentant Nineveh was, was not punished. Unrepentant Nineveh will be. A hundred years before... The king said, we better do something about this and put sackcloth on. And, and according to the book of Jonah, there was thousands and thousands of people in that city. And a hundred years later, here comes, here comes uh, God's judgment. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. He controls nature. He brings up about the weather. Well, I saw a whirlwind, but I didn't see God. Well, that's the point. His, his power made it, but you... You can't see it. Clouds are the dust of his feet. What a picture. He's, he's getting it in our minds how powerful he is. He's getting it in the Ninevites' minds that he controls everything. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Here, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. Three places that otherwise are just luxurious Lebanon has these trees. Have you ever seen the cedars of Lebanon? They're absolutely beautiful. There's psalms that talk about them. Bashan and Carmel, they were just beautiful, beautiful places in the land that God gave. But what is he going to do? They just take them away, wither. And he underscores, mountains quake, hills melt, the earth heaves. It sounds like psalms, doesn't it? He uttered his voice, what? The earth melted. We know that psalm. And then, here's the extent, out to the world and all who dwell in it. Uh, I think it's possibly tonight we're going to hear about Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed? And God says, look, you can't stop it. I don't care 
What coalition? I don't care if you make an international coalition of anti-God, you can't stop it. No part of nature is out of his, outside of his control. He can cause the most extreme changes and all the people of the world will witness his execution of his power. Well, then he brings questions. And this, this is God's mercy of inquisition. We, we do it with our children. The children do something and you say, son, daughter, uh, were you acting right towards your sister? Is that the way you should talk to your mother? <coughs> Answer me. Right? Well, God does that in mercy and grace. How many questions did Jesus ask people? How many questions have we seen in the prophets? It's God's mercy of inquisition. Who do people say that I am? Let's get to the bottom of it. Let's find out what you really believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who do people say that I am? Well, well God does the same thing. But here to Nineveh, he says, who can stand and who can endure? I just told you all the ways that I can control nature. I just told you how powerful I am. Now the question comes to you, who can stand and who can endure? What individual or nation can? The indignation and anger of God cannot be stopped. And the picture is of uh, heated anger uh, followed by wrath that's likened to fire. And you remember how dangerous fire was in those days, right? Even those pictures in Westerns, you know, and somebody says, the barn's on fire, and they just grab buckets. Well, 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 three, four thousand years ago, it was even harder than that, harder than that to stop a fire. That's why fire is put there all the time as a, a dangerous thing. Wrath as fire, rocks are broken into pieces. There's another demonstration of his power and the anger and jealousy of God has been stirred up and the question is who's going to stop it and then out of nowhere it seems verse 7 comes and says the Lord is good and we might say well that's kind of a surprise but it's not a surprise because God is against his enemies in the midst of declared disaster God's people are often caught troubled and wondering. So here, here comes some w words of comfort. Well, how can God be good? Well, he's good to those who he knows. He's bad to his enemies. His enemies are still in trouble. But his character, remember we said, justice and goodness, they go together. They're always together. There's no God of the Old Testament and we can't wait till Jesus gets here. It's justice and goodness is always there, perfectly, fully, completely in everything that he does. All good comes from God. We studied it in James 1.17. Every good and every perfect gift, where does it come? It just keeps coming down from uh, God, the Father of lights. We studied it in uh, uh, James 1.18. He, he, he created all the stars. He's the Father of lights, but he's also the, uh, the Father of all the redeemed. It's a demonstration of God's character. Jeremiah 33.11, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. Psalm 100 and verse 5, it's, it's very familiar to us. For the Lord is good. He wipes out the stronghold of the wicked, both physically 
and spiritually, but to believers, he's called a stronghold, he's called a tower, he's called a refuge, and he's called a hiding place. When we see things going on around us, we might even ask, is it going to get any worse than this? But we have to remember, God is good. And the verse comes right up and abuts it. I'm going to judge. I'm going to be like fire. I'm going to break rocks right next to it. God is good. And that's what we have to remember. That's what we have to be encouraged. To believers, it's another kind of comfort. And, and look what God says. Let's see which eyeball can get this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows, he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows those who take refuge in him. Do you honestly, really take refuge in God today? Do you honestly take refuge in God? Well, if I'm in trouble, I do because... Otherwise, I keep my eye over here, and then if I get in trouble, then I turn to the Lord. No, no, that's not what he's saying. There's trouble all around. Fire's coming, rocks are breaking, the seas are dried up, oceans and rivers are dried up. Who do you trust in? But there's, a, there's, there's something that stands sure, and Paul says it in 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those for his. He actually says, he actually says this testimony bears a seal. It's put on there. It's a seal. It's sealed. God knows who are his. And I have to ask you today, do you know that, that you're trusting in God? Well, I do until I heard about the latest conspiracy that people are coming in, up with. I do until I heard about the, the latest uh, COVID 295Z07. That's really going to be bad. If you thought COVID 19, are, are, are we trusting in God in days of trouble? And I'm not saying that, that we all should never have fear and never have doubt, but we might need to, we might need to jump in the foxhole with each other and say, don't put our arms around each other and say, don't be troubled. God knows who trusts in him. We're not immune because we're the United States of America. We're not immune because somebody put God in our Pledge of Allegiance or in some of the laws and rules that we made. But then the good news turns to bad news for God's adversaries in verses 8 through 11. Here's the contrast with an overflowing flood. Here comes the judgment again. God's good, but to the enemies, don't forget, here comes an overflowing flood. It carries away all the enemies. He'll destroy uh, all the strongholds. Remember Amos uh, chapter 1. He just went through Moab, Edom, Damascus, Syria. Destroy the strongholds, destroy the strongholds, destroy the strongholds. Each place, the overwhelming flood carries all of the adversaries. The pursuit of enemies is frequently recorded in the Old Testament, isn't it? Here's a battle, and the place of the battle is named, and the winner, the, the conqueror of the battle, uh, uh, pursues the defeated army, and a number of times it says, as far as so-and-so. And, and, and I've been interested sometimes, well, how far is that? 
Well, well, sometimes they actually pursued enemies 15 or 20 miles. You remember uh, J.L. put the tent peg through the, the guy's head. He's the only one left. Maybe he was a fast runner. They, they've caught up with everybody that, that was with him, and he's the last guy, and he ducks into this tent. Please hide me. The, the bad guys are coming, right? The defeating. That's the picture. It says, as far as, or pursued into the land to show the utter defeat and the rout. But where does God pursue his enemies? Where does he say Nineveh is going to go? Into darkness. There's no other place that's worse than darkness. It's a picture of Yahweh's utter destruction of Assyria and Nineveh. It's the condition or state of which a person lives. You're familiar with it. But Isaiah 42 talks about those who sit in darkness. 47, 5 in Isaiah. They will go into darkness. We're uncomfortable in darkness, aren't we? Even in our own home. Have you ever been in one of those places where you can't see anything in, at all? In, right? Your hand, you can't see a thing? I remember, I remember my ex-son-in-law said, well, we're going to look at the, the night vision goggles, but I have to turn the lights off first. Don't move. Totally pitch absolutely black. That's where enemies go. Even, even in your own home, you're reaching out. Oh yeah, there, there's the edge of the bed. It can now turn. You, you, you're afraid because if you miss it by this much, your toe is in trouble. Oh, it was dark. I hit myself on the counter. God says, no, it's not hitting on the counter. It's not your toe. You're going to be pushed into darkness. They'll be thrust into darkness, he says in Isaiah 8.22. He's talking about Israel. And you remember that's the blessed prophecy because the next chapter 9 verse 1 says, the people that sat in darkness saw a great light. They saw salvation. But through the punishment of other nations, God was going to thrust his own people into darkness. Then here come the plots and the plans. Verse 9 and 11. They, they were plotting. They were plotting against the Lord. Verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? There's another question. The mercy of inquisition. What are you plotting against the Lord? Huh? You know about that? Oh, uh, well, I wasn't doing anything. Well, how could you answer that question? But then he says he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. A complete end. And then there's three likes. Three likes. They're like thorns. They're like drunkards. Or they're like stubble that's fully dried. First of all, they're like entangled thorns. Remember, you remember we looked at Micah chapter 7. Micah was trying to find a righteous person on the earth and he couldn't and in Micah 7 verse 4 he says the best of them is like a briar the most upright of them is like a thorn hedge he couldn't find any good people and we talked about that what what takes over the person whose seed isn't developing it's thorns and briars what is the worst place you can get into that and the, those agricultural pictures uh, many times in the prophets that's all that's left 
God takes this luxuriant land, and there's a number of passages I could point to. He just says that the rest is going to produce briars and thorns. So the, the people in Micah's day were like that, even the best of them. You can't get much except a, a pricked finger or a pricked hand or a cut. And then they're like drunkards as they drink. Uh, many people drink way beyond any moderation on a regular basis, and that's, that's what a drunkard is. A drunkard, by definition, is a, a habitual drinker. They just go back to it and back to it and back to it. But, but, you, but you see what God says, because no drunkard in a stupor is ready for battle. You could take the three drunken Assyrians and have them see the Babylonians and the Medes come, and they're, all right, we're going to go get these guys, right? They talk about beer muscles. My brother hung out with a guy like that. Get three or four or five beers in him, and next he was ready to uh, take on everybody. The problem was he was only five foot seven and thin. My brother would have to bail him out. Say, please, can't you see? Can't you see? He doesn't know what he's doing. You can't fight. You're not ready for battle. Here comes Yahweh's judgment and you're reeling and staggering and laughing. And then finally, like stubble, fully dried. You, you see that picture, don't you? The crops harvested and stubble is left. It's what's sticking up. And you cut that off and you gather it together. But, but, but stubble, uh, stubble's like a Christmas tree burn. You ever burn a Christmas tree? You ever throw a Christmas tree into a fire? Right? Oh, you say, that's nice and warm. Two minutes later, it's like, where'd the Christmas tree go? But that's what they're like. That's what he's saying you're like. You burn fast and hot and short, and really, you're no good. Uh, Barnes says, these are marvelous words, fully dry. For what is dryness but emptiness? They are perfected but in dryness, and so perfectly prepared to be burned up. What a picture. Fully dried, like a Christmas tree burn. Then he points directly at the king. The commentators say, verse 11, points at the king. It says, you... They're worthless counselors. And there's millions of people that are worthless, worthless counselors. They counsel against God and his people, but God proves their counsel's vanity and of no value. Roughly in 701-702, Sennacherib sent his Rabshika to the walls of, of Jerusalem. They're under siege. Things aren't going well. They can't go in. They can't go out. And you remember what the guy says. Don't listen to anybody. Where are the Assyrians? Right? They even knew their language. They're right? Tricky stuff. What a satanic thing. Right? Sometimes people know your language too. Be careful of them. He says, don't trust in God. Don't you realize we've laid waste to everything that's around you? Yes. Don't trust in what Hezekiah says. Don't do this. Don't do that. The guy insults God. He insults the people. They actually say, don't talk so loud. Don't say that. No, he says, I'm going to say it because you're all going to die. We're going to come and we're going to die. Sennacherib only lasted a few more days. He got back to Assyria and his sons killed him. 185,000 soldiers got killed. 
God said, no, you, you don't talk about me that way. But then Israel was taken, taken over again. Well, verses 12 through 14 is a split prophecy, but I'm, I'm going to stop there. I, I did want to get to verse 14 only because um, verse 15 is about the gospel. It's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, verse. And so we'll take more time with verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, right? Be, do what's right in the, si in the sight of God. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He, he's utterly cut off. There, there's a little bit of Revelation 19 and Revelation 18 in there as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you now that you would write your words on our heart. We see that this prophecy is lively and filled with truth for our souls. Help us not to uh, shortchange your word. Help us not to shortchange what your word uh, can do for our souls. Lord, in the day of trouble, we pray that you would know that we have set our souls to trust in you. But help us, Lord. There are things that deeply trouble us that we're deeply concerned about. But help us to know that you are a good God and you know uh, who uh, trusts in you. In Jesus' name, amen.